Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. In today's program, my guest is Teresa Fogelberg, a former top diplomat at the Netherlands Ministries of Foreign Affairs. She has been an OSD working party chair, private sector advisor of the UN Secretary General, and executive and co-founder of the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. She has been active in many boards, both public and private, with a focus on sustainability. Her mission is to address the global challenges of poverty, inequality and climate with solutions, using innovative partnerships between business, governments, civil society and consumers. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you very much, Kai. It's such a pleasure to be here uh, and to be uh, among the very impressive lists of people that have already been podcasted by you. You are one of the most inspiring pioneers and coach when it comes to implementation of sustainability principles and actions in both businesses and governments, often with uh, multi-stakeholder dialogues, as I remember, as early in, in the beginning of year 2000, based on my work with the Business Leaders Initiative on Human Rights and Climate Change. Uh, it was also relationship to Global Compact and Carbon Disclosure Projects, and your work with the Global Reporting Initiative. What was the driver for you to be a change maker and entrepreneur in this field? Well, thank you for that question, Kai. I have to tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up as a, in the Netherlands as a child of migrants from Sweden and, and Finland. My mother was a war refugee. And as a child, I think involuntarily, she implanted in me a sense that geopolitical things can turn for the worse. I remember vividly as a kid, I was thinking, what will happen if the war starts? Can we, where can we flee? He, who will help us? And my mother also had a strong feeling of social justice and compassion with those that were less privileged than us. Uh, my father, who was from Sweden, he was a great, uh, you could say, uh, homo universalis. He was, um, he, he taught me intellectual curiosity to observe and to question everything and not take things for granted. He also, uh, being from Sweden, was very uh, irritated by what he called the Swedish complacency, always thinking that they are the best country in the world. Um, he is, I think, the only person I know who read the Bible, the Quran, and the Bhagavad Gita from cover to cover. And he taught me about the importance of history, poetry, and we made a lot of music together. And he also took me to places when I was 10 already, he made me visit the favelas of Mexico. and. Uh, that made me question like, you know, why do I live in a nice house with a garden full of tulips when other kids, you know, don't have a, a roof upon their heads. Also being growing up as an outsider, comparing, not taking things for granted meant automatically that things are not cast in stone, that they have not always been like that and that you can change them. You can unravel old institutions, old traditions, and transform them for the better, making them better for everyone. I became an anthropologist. Um, so I study, I started more from the intellectual perspective, studying social organization, learning how uh, that however different 
uh, or, uh, societies can be in terms of stratification on the basis of class, gender, or ethnicity, that in the end, we are all one human family in this world, so different and yet so alike. I was especially fascinated by the role of women. And I was the first person in the Netherlands who got the opportunity to serve as a junior lecturer, uh, lecturer on gender studies at the University of Leiden. But soon after, the foreign ministry asked me to go to Mauritania, to a desert country uh, in West Africa, and to work within a ministry of social development on empowerment of women in a, in a fully female team uh, under the leadership and we'll talk later about I hope for, I hope about leadership and how and how important it is to be inspired by leaders. This was a, a lady called Khadasha Mint Emir, and she was greatly greatly inspiring to me. And in a very uh, tough desert environment in West Africa, and how with so many obstacles and so many cultural constraints, women could indeed change their lives to the better. So while I was there in working in the, in the Sahara Desert, uh, there was a big drought happening at that period in the mid 80s. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, State Department of the US asked me as an anthropologist to help them set up a system to predict famine. What indicators can be found in a situation when there are no statistics, there is no formal system. How can you measure things that are unmeasurable, let alone how can you predict them? And that's how I got involved uh, with what I call later as a red thread in my career, measuring the unmeasurable. So I set up something called the Femin Early Warning System. And today, uh, 40 or 35 years later, it is still being used as a system to predict if a famine is going to happen and what kind of measures will have to be taken in terms of food security, uh, climate change and things like that. After that, I, I started working um, uh, for the Dutch ministry again. And when I came back after 10 years in Africa, uh, the Minister of Development Cooperation then, uh, Jan Pronk, asked me to uh, help him set up a completely new department on women's women's empowerment. And I also became the chair of the OECD Working Party uh, on Women and Development, which led then to the UN Beijing Conference in 95. So I can tell a lot of stories about that period, but you ask me, you know, how, how did you come? How do you how did you become a pioneer and a change maker? Yes, well, I think I think in all of that, I learned not to give up and not to get no for an answer and to work with special support groups that inspire you and that help you get your cause and not to be intimidated by what we call the corridors of power and nor by those who are skeptical and say, this is not gonna work. We will not attain uh, international agreement on this. There's too much change. There's too much difference. There's too much, you know, the gap is too large. We could make it happen in these different fields uh, in Beijing. You know, the first time that China hosted the UN conference and they had no idea how to deal with NGO and NGOs and activist groups and all that. And, and also, of course, the whole climate work, because after having led the Department of Women and Development, uh, I was for five years director of research at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where I got acquainted with the interconnectedness of poverty, social development on the one hand, and the uh, natural resources, 
the climate, forestry, environmental nexus, on the other hand, and how they are related uh, through, uh, through research. So after five years of leading the research department, uh, I was asked to become a climate director, again, without any uh, knowledge of climate, but with a full and deep understanding uh, of what uh, you know what uh, a natural resource depletion means in developing countries having lived in one of the harshest uh, parts of the world in the Sahel region which was very strongly affected by climate change and, and lack of water and so on. Well, let us stay yeah. there in the field of yeah. climate change because that could be also a question to, to for me yeah. to to relate to to what's happening in, when we look back and 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 also mirror the the early work of, of climate issues and and the Stockholm conference in 1972 before the Rio summit 92 yeah. and we have the Rio plus 20 and the Stockholm plus 40 conference when we met the last time and then the question around the Paris Agreement and what's happening in Paris and, and with the, the NDCs action plans and now the trends also focus on, on SDGs and ESG policies and actions. A lot of conferences with high ambitions and plan. Still, science reporting this year the highest level of greenhouse gases on our planet. How do you see this development? a very slow process for an ambitious leader as you are? Yes, yes. I think you're right. If, if we look back, yes, 40, uh, maybe even 50 years have gone by since all those conferences started with a focus on climate. And yes, indeed, the greenhouse gas emissions are higher than they have ever been. And we now see lately climate factors that are even beyond our control and that can accelerate these emissions uh, so that we even go beyond this uh, the tipping point and if you look at the pace of all these conferences part of which i have been head of delegation quite a few and we had to go through this horrible eu coordination uh, you know for on every uh, dot and every comma in the final text of course you lose confidence but uh, I don't think this, uh, you know, this would have been where we are now, and I'll say in a minute where we are now, all of this would not have happened if we would not have gotten all the UN member states on board and private sector agents and NGOs and government and at that. Sometimes you need a certain pace, you need a certain time in order to get all those people and all those actors on board. But if we look where we are now, June uh, 2021, I do think we are at a unique opportunity, at a unique window of opportunity, in the sense that never before big geopolitical players have so openly, and thank God that the US is back on board, have so openly kind of endorsed that this is so urgent that we need to kind of double, triple, quadruple uh, the action that is needed. So I think the the time, uh, as you said, it's taken so many years, the time is, of course, maybe the most uh, pressing issue of all, because of this commitment that we have of the leaders, uh, things will go faster. But also what I think another very important fa factor uh, 
maybe also because of COVID, but also because of other factors uh, dealing with uh, increasing inequality, there is also, you could say for the first time, instead of a divergence of instruments, you have a convergence of, uh, of instruments, tool, efforts, not only in the field of uh, technical innovation, but also at the political level, but also at the level of thematic uh, international agreements. And we started this conversation focusing on the importance of human rights and you yourself uh, Kai, you were uh, one of the leaders who in the beginning also saw the relevance of the interconnectedness between human rights and climate, but many others didn't see that. So these were always completely different tracks. And now we see them coming together and they complement each other in such a way that it will, becoming, it will become easier to make binding agreements because let's forget Paris is not a legally binding instrument. It's a political agreement. But what we see coming because Paris has such a strong moral force that out of Paris, out of, uh, Paris, out of this non-legally binding instrument, instrument, we see other instruments kind of popping up. And a very interesting example is, the, um, is that now the courts, uh, for instance, the courts in the Netherlands uh, in May 21, so last month, ordered Shell to reduce the oil company to reduce its uh, CO2 emission by 45% by the end of this decade, so by 2030, based on human rights law or European human rights law, because it said that citizens ha should have the right to live in a safe environment and having extreme CO2 emission uh, caused by Shell uh, uh, will prevent people to live safely. So you see a human right instrument being used to push forward climate action. And I think that's the interesting uh, situation that we live in now. So on the one hand, uh, everybody feels that we can't go on another 40 years. So we have this time argument uh, being becoming less important or mm. becoming more urgent yeah, with Glasgow coming, with Glasgow on its way. And on the other hand, we see that there are more and more uh, legal instruments coming in to force governments, but also the private sector towards uh, action. So in that sense, I'm optimistic. Well, that's great. Uh, after these 40 years and you're looking back yeah. and, and I understand that you, you sometimes feel that uh, why hasn't it happened more than, than this? Uh, yeah. When you look at the result of the greenhouse yeah. gases and, and this different types of challenges in different parts of society. With you as a secretary general and co-founder of GRI, can you give the listener an insight how, how was the work to be developed under these years under your leadership? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, as I uh, explained earlier, I became a, a climate uh, director and there for the first time in my career, I really learned about the, the force, the transformative force potentially of the private sector. And I was engaged, uh, as, I, uh, as I said earlier, uh, advising uh, Kofi Annan during the, there was Rio plus 10 in 92 in Johannesburg, where we developed the public private partnership. And I was looking for a way in which we could kind of use the power of uh, the private sector and at the same time 
see how it could be held accountable because at that time also there was an, a lot of window dressing there was a lot of initiatives you know just to do kind of pr by companies but how how could we kind of uh, how could we help them and capture this immense force of business without losing you could say the rights based perspective and there i think gri came up it was launched in johannesburg in 92 uh, uh, it came out of the US where it was more like a, uh, you could say, a, a shareholder activist group that they, they bought shares with companies and then they had access to hear what companies were doing, but a truly multi stakeholder organization that had a global ambition that was kicked off in Amsterdam in, uh, in 2004 and I, I had the opportunity to um, to bring it to the Netherlands as climate director. And then I was so fascinated that I gave up my job at the government and had myself seconded and the rest of history. But in the US, there were some really important people, Joanne Bavaria, but also um, Al Gore was a, was a strong uh, sponsor. And he came to our first big event when we launched the, the first big new generation of the GRI guidelines. And, and other important people like uh, Bob Messi from from Boston. The, the the importance of GRI was that it was a very simple concept. Everybody knows about financial reporting by companies, and here the idea was what they called sustainability reporting with by companies with principles in combination with so-called indicators based on and rooted in the big UN conventions on climate, biodiversity, but also on human rights and women's rights. And later, corporate, uh, corporate governance issues were added, like board composition uh, and uh, anti-corruption measures, and of course, tax payments. And that's a big topic now, of course, with the G7 only very recently having agreed, uh, and the G20 will probably follow uh, and it will be rooted in, in legislation now that large companies will have to pay an equal tax across the board and therefore reporting on this is extremely important. You mentioned governance and yeah. one of the issues that has followed all these processes yeah. has been related to governance. Do you yeah. see, is it, is it a weak system today of governance or has it been stronger? Or why don't we discuss the governance uh, and leadership issues, how they are related to this type of policies and actions? You, you mean governance issues yeah. in companies? Yes, it could be governance in companies, but also in, yeah. in the political system. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think uh, that's a very important question. I do think that over the past few years, uh, the topic of governance has really uh, popped up. And, and I have, of course, specifically looked at governance of, of companies. And if you look now, for instance, at the European Union, there's a whole new um, endeavor, actually, because of political resistance, it has now been postponed again. But there's going to be European legislation on corporate governance in such a way that short-termism, short-term gain will have to be put aside 
uh, towards you know long-term gain for society and there's a lot of rethinking about what is the role of business really is it is it a profit or is it uh, does it have a social or more moral role so i think for many many years the topic of governance both in public and private sector was kind of you know it was too it was too uh, dangerous it was too political there were too many vested interests and i think now because of those vested interests having been put on the table also by critical uh, investigating journalism etc it has now come on on the table and i think that is one of the big uh, uh, again, uh, one of the big results and successes of GRI, because from the beginning, we have always said it's the E, it's the S, it's the E of environment, it's the S of social and human rights, and it's the G of governments, because that's how, through the processes of governance, uh, it is how power relations are being formed, how decisions are being made that have impact on all of our lives. So I think, and, and I, I, I think in many countries, People are also rethinking democracy and and re and in in the formal political process and um, telling themselves that what we took for granted, you know, de democracy through the traditional parliamentary uh, system, is something that has stayed forever and will stay forever, uh, and, will, and will serve the public good. Well, it doesn't. So I think there's a whole new wave of of rethinking governance, and at GRI we became specialist uh, in our own governments in a way and now you see many 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 other initiatives but way back uh, around 2000 the whole idea of setting up something that on the one hand is very flexible in terms of you know new initiatives uh, new content but at the same time having a rather formal procedure of who is part which stakeholders are part of this process and how do we make uh, how do we make global decisions in the interest of the global uh, global good? We we made a lot of rules and and they still stick till today. So if you look at the governments of of GRI, you see that there is a very strict division of geographies, uh, like you know all parts of the world should be part of this. Um, how many representatives of labor, how many from civil society, how many from governments, how many from business, and how can we avoid that all of these stakeholders do not only fight for their own interest, but kind of beyond for the global interest. And that That's is something, yeah. a yeah, new this... form of governance. But you have been going through all these governance structures yeah. and as a woman. And and mostly governance uh, has been related to a lot of men sitting in positions to, to drive change. But uh, how has it been to be a woman uh, to lead this type of multi-stakeholder model as global reporting initiative? Well, I, um... If you ask this question, I think you could ask to me personally, but of course there yes. are many other women in the organization. But I think it has, uh, it, I think it could even have been an advantage because uh, I have been used to work with so many different constituencies and uh, I have been, uh, I have been, I had quite an experience to work with very senior, very difficult men, if I may say so a little bit bluntly. 
Oh. So uh, I knew how to handle them. I knew how to handle uh, people, you know, very high up in the UN and and, and in government. And, and so I think for me, uh, it has always worked quite positively. And I have always worked with a lot of women around me. And, and on all the boards that I have worked, I've really tried to recruit women whenever we had a position and I was on a search committee, because it is still a, a struggle. And you, you as women, women always have to do the little extra to prove themselves. So one of my tradition is to recruit women, to coach young women and to support them uh, whenever they come find themselves in a position that they th are thinking about starting a family and they have their career. That is still a big issue uh, in organizations. So there I always um, uh, you know, uh, have coached them a lot, so to say. How do you see the GRI's initiative in the future? Which is the role? To well, if, if we look at where GRI has come, having been uh, adopted and used by around more or less 10,000 companies in over 100 countries, so you could say a GRI could sit back and say, well, this is now de facto standard. That would be a dangerous thing. Um, I think there are a few things uh, for the future that uh, an organization like GRI and other similar uh, sustainability related multi stakeholder organizations should think of. Um, and, uh, and that is, uh, first of all, maybe looking back and writing its history. I think no one has ever written the history of GRI and at a certain moment that knowledge will get lost. So maybe that's a strange thing to say, because that's about the past. I think also on the leadership issue, uh, you know, this topic of sustainability reporting has become so attractive and so commercially interesting for a lot of companies that there is a certain risk that the what I say call the accountants might take over. And, and because there is so much commercial interest now as well. And I think the, the value was also in the rights-based organization. So I think that balance needs to be very, very carefully kept, including those representatives from, from developing countries that don't have the resources. Otherwise, we risk to fall in the trap of becoming too American or too European, which has happened in the past. And another thing is that today, because sustainability reporting or ESG reporting or whatever you would call it, value reporting, has become so accepted and is now becoming part uh, even more than a few years ago of legal requirements, uh, a bottom-up organization like GRI will be swallowed by the big uh, companies and, and the big new uh, standard setter. And that is happening uh, now. So there is a lot of power play out there. And therefore, I think, uh, you know, the movement has to stay very vigilant and not be attracted by, uh, you know, big players that kind of, you know, would buy us off. And I think that's that's a real uh, that's a real risk. And in order to steer that process really well, you need strong leaders, independent leaders. And there at the moment, I think the, the leadership could be strengthened.
what is the characteristic to be a successful leader in this type of multi-stakeholder? We need people um, that work together that not in the past have been enemies and that have had completely competitive or contradictory uh, interests. So we have seen organizations like Greenpeace and Shell in the same room that, you know, they are always fighting each other. And now we have to look for common ground. So on the one hand, you need this kind of very um, diplomatic skills. Eh? We are now looking at certain tensions uh, uh, around the Arctic Council again, you know, you bring people together and you you find a common denominator, which is, you know, climate goals, science, which are kind of neutral factors. So you have to bring these contradictory uh, interests around the table, uh, which is a loose interactive process. And at the same time, you need rather strict rules, like, you know, if you are part of this process, this is the rules, this is what you can get out of it. This is what it's in it for you, because a lot of these NGOs, they felt they feel a little bit exploited. Huh? They come, uh, they come and sit at the table. They give their name, like you know, WWF, Oxfam, etc., and then they are asked to leave. And you know, whatever is created, maybe a public global good, but still, you know, what is it really in them, uh, in it for them? So you really have to make very, very clear rules of you know how does their voice count. And is the content, do they have a real say over the content? And I think it has been this kind of mix that have, has been successful. And you need strong people to lead this and who understand different cultures as well, because the, an American way of negotiating is a completely different one than if you would be from China or India or, or Zimbabwe or something. What is also important, I think, is more general rules of leadership. And I remember a, a list of 10 kind of um, characteristics of leadership. Always keep studying, keep reading, uh, keep that kind of uh, curiosity when you are in the leadership position. And when you make a decision, always look at the impact that that decision can have on the weak, weakest member of the group or the ones that is the, the most disadvantaged. Always solicit people who think differently from you and who think against you. Uh, to sharpen your own judgment. Don't cherish your own power. Try to be blind for praise, eh? because you know, uh, then, then you will become uh, weak. And realize, uh, accept ideological differences, but don't make them uh, bigger than they really are. Um, I would like to say, and of course, always choose democratic processes and this is a difficult one because when you're sitting together with a small group you say well we know what the answer is we have found the solutions we are the experts why should we now go uh, for a half a year through a public comment period where the whole world will say that we are wrong and come up with all kinds of no you have to go through the democratic process otherwise you will not get the legitimacy and the last one is um if you are completely lost and you say you know what are on earth are we doing and we're never going to get there read a poem and read it out to the others because then you get you you reground with yourself and you reground with the others and you reconnect with the others and with the final aim that you were um that you were uh, fighting for in the first place so can you give any good names of people that you have been inspired by in your work? 
In my work, I, I mentioned Khadija Mint Emir in Mauritania, who lived in a very uh, difficult cultural and, and uh, climatic uh, uh, environment where, um, you know, feminism was not something that was accepted by the government. And she was amazing. And she really taught me what to do, uh, you know, on, on, on the ground. And another boss that I had and that I'm still working with is Jan Pronk, who for 16 years uh, was minister uh, for the, in the Netherlands government on development cooperation and later uh, uh, environment and climate change. And together uh, we worked uh, during the COP uh, presidency of the Netherlands and, and, and we still sit on, on boards together. And he's an amazing person he, at 82. He's still writing books and he's still being a big uh, influencer. So those are two people that I have worked with uh, in my career and that were, were bosses and that were very inspiring. Uh, my career is that I somehow sometimes stuck with bosses that were incompetent or you know that were not inspiring and I lost energy and I lost time. So I would say choose a boss that inspires you. Well, experience you earn through your work in, in your daily life. And, and sometimes you also have time to read a book. Yeah. And, and is it any book you would like to recommend? I read a lot. And if there's one author that I come back to time and again is Turgenev, one of the big uh, Russian authors of the 19th century. And, you know, I think many people know Fathers and Sons. I think I must have reread it, re it six, seven, eight times. And it's about the big questions of life. It's about compassion, love, but also the tragedy of, of life and of big ambitions and ideologies that gets lost and misunderstanding also, but also love between uh, generations. Well, uh, let's uh, say that this inspiring advice for the young generation and for others who would like to go into different types of stories, uh, let that be some of the uh, last advice in this talk show. And um, I was very pleased to have you here, uh, Teresa. And it has been very skillful for us to go through this, I think, for others also. And uh, to, to give some sort of step of, of how we can transform uh, knowledge and experience from one generation to the next generation. And thank you very much, uh, Teresa, for your participation in today's talk. Thank you very much, Kai. It has been a great pleasure. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>